Well, this morning is going to be a little different. We're going to talk about social media and the internet. Parents, just so you know, you, you can't talk about social media and the internet without talking about pornography. So if you're not ready to have that conversation with your child and your child is with you today, you, you may want to think about taking them out of the room if you're not ready to talk about that, because we'll talk quite a bit about that today. If your child is probably third or fourth grade or older, then you need to have that talk this afternoon. So setting you up for that. Well, when we think about social media and the internet, it's in our lives, it's all around us, it's the world we now live in. There's no way that I can say everything that needs to be said about the internet or social media in one sermon. So all I can do today is try to share some principles and some practices that I've discovered through scripture and through a few months of research that I spent on this topic that, that will hopefully help guide you in your use of the internet and social media and if you're a parent, help you to train your kids to interact well in the online world. So that's where we're headed this morning. Here's the challenge. There isn't any passage of scripture that addresses the internet or Instagram. Paul never wrote on that. We don't have any direct biblical revelation on this new world we live in. Paul couldn't even imagine it. And so the best we can do is try to find general biblical principles that, that we try to apply to this brave new world that we're all living in. And, and applying these principles is an imprecise science. And so I tell you that to make it clear. I'm going to share my conclusions and my practices with you this morning. And it is okay if you disagree with me. That's fine. I, I'm not sure what all we should do. I'm going to share my conclusions. I ask you to listen with an open mind to what research and the Bible have led me to conclude. But if you disagree with that, that's okay. What I want you to do is to think in your own life and in your own family, what of this do you want to apply to guide you and your kids so that you can follow Jesus online. That's where we're headed this morning. That's the goal. So I'm going to walk you through all of these practices and principles so that you can begin to think deeply and critically and biblically about social media and your use of the internet. So let me start with my story so you know where I'm coming from. My first computer I got in 1988. It was this guy, a Mac SE, and I loved it. It was amazing, incredible computer. It came, get this, with a 20 megabyte hard drive. Now make sure you, megabyte, not gigabyte. 20 megabyte, it would not hold one video on your phone. It came with one megabyte of RAM. It came with a nine inch black and white screen and we paid $2,500 for that thing. Fast forward to today, my three-year-old iPhone shipped with 1,000 times the storage of that computer, 800 times the RAM, 350 times the processing power, an infinitely better screen, and it cost a fraction of that. Computers have changed dramatically in 30 years, and yet that stunning pace of change is nothing compared to how fast the internet has changed in 30 years since it began. In the mid-80s is when the internet was spawned, when it came into existence. It's only been around 30 years, and yet it has radically changed the world. Who here is old enough to remember what life was like before the internet? 
I'm 40, so I can still remember when we had an actual phone in the kitchen with a cord that was coiled that you'd like you'd go as far as you could and then it would snag on something. And I can remember when your options for entertainment in the evening were like three network TV stations, Fox and PBS, and that was it. I can remember when if you wanted to actually send somebody a letter, you had to actually write it and stamp it and put it in this metal box we called a mailbox. That was the only way to send it to. I can remember when you put Reader's Digest in the bathroom because you had nothing else to look at when you were doing your business. It's a completely different world. But then fast forward, 1994, I come to Texas A&M and I move into Dunn Hall when it had just been wired for Ethernet. And the whole world began to change rapidly. We had all this speed, all this bandwidth on our computers at all times. And so we started communicating primarily by email rather than phone. And we started hanging out with each other, even though we all lived in the same one big building, we're hanging out online, playing games or, or in forums. And more and more, we were researching on our computers. We weren't walking to Evans. We were doing it right there in our dorm rooms. The world was changing radically. And yet that was before social media even existed. The world has changed under our feet. If, if you're 40 or older, I really want you to just pause for a second and think. How much of your job has changed because of the internet? How much has your connection with your friends and family changed because of the internet? How much has economics changed? How you pay your bills, how you buy things because of the internet? How much has entertainment changed? Because of the, it's completely different. The world has changed radically. I, I, would, I would subscribe to a bunch of researchers who say that the internet, the invention of the internet, has changed the human race faster and more profoundly than any other invention in the history of the human race. It has changed us immensely. And some of that change is really good. Because of the internet and social media, we as a species, we now have access to almost all human knowledge. It's incredible. No one in the history of the human race has had such access to knowledge. And now persecuted groups have an outlet to get their message out so they can get help. And now because of the internet, we have this incredible growth in our economic efficiencies, whole new industries, whole new ways that we buy and sell, driving down prices, increasing selection. And the internet, it's connected us to more people than ever before. So there's a ton of good that has come through the internet, but there is also an incredible amount of evil and suffering that have come through the internet and through social media. It did not take long at all before terrorists, criminals, racists, and pedophiles found the internet to be a perfect tool to do criminal things. It did not take long for social media to develop into this petri dish festering with fake news and gossip and racism and bigamy and all these horrible things. And don't even get me started on pornography. Nancy Jo Sales wrote an amazing but very hard to read book called American Girls, Social Media and the Secret Lives of Teenagers, where she says the adoption of the internet in American life is inextricably tied to porn. In 2015, porn sites were among the most popular in cyberspace, accounting for up to 35% of internet traffic. Porn is more available now than it has ever been, and for the first time, it is readily available to everyone, including kids. Studies have reported that American children start seeing online porn as young as age six. 
And now, thanks to social media, our kids are not only consuming porn, they are producing porn by taking and sharing nudes. There are, she says, slut pages at every high school in America where non-consensual nude pictures of girls at the school are shared, followed by anonymous, horrible comments. I'm sure that's true in the other side of the parking lot, that building right over there. Every major social media platform, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of them are used to distribute pornography. Look no further than the news this week, the secret Marine group on Facebook, where Marine soldiers shared non-consensual nude pictures of female soldiers. Pornography is everywhere online. And beyond just the blatantly evil stuff that we find on the internet and social media, even the good stuff is having bad effects upon us. The research is conclusive. Our use of the internet and social media is changing the neural structure of our brains. We are actually in the middle of an incredible evolutionary moment. We're changing how the human brain operates because of all the time that we're spending online. It's rewiring our brains. The good news is that we are able to process a wider ocean of interconnected data than ever before. The bad news is that the wideness of our processing power has come at the expense of the deepness. Humans are no longer able to think deeply about one thing for any length of time. I've seen that in my own life, and I do blame it on the internet. Blame it on the fact that I've been using the internet now for 20 years. And it's changing how my brain operates so that it's harder and harder for me to think deeply about any one thing for an extended period of time. I think that's why political discourse has collapsed in our country. Back in Abraham Lincoln's day, crowds would stand for three hours listening to a politician explain his or her views. Today, you're lucky to get 30 seconds. We live in a world of sound bites. Everything has to be boiled down to 140 characters or less so it fits on Twitter. So we don't have mature, deep conversation because our brains aren't able to do it anymore. That's a, that's a bit of a scary thing to think about how the internet and social media is changing the human race. Second, even the good stuff on social media and the internet fuels comparison and starves contentment. That's just the nature of how the internet works. Again, in Nancy Jo Sale's book, she quotes Michael Harris as saying, online life is a toxic enabler of the desire to compare. She quotes Jean Kilborn saying, social media creates a heightened sense of competition and inferiority. Now, let's be clear. Humans have always struggled with comparisons. We, we always do that. We struggle to be content in life. But now, thanks to social media, you have a never-ending wall of posts, pictures, comments to constantly feed your need to compare and your feeling of inferiority. And here's the problem. What do we post on social media? Only the really good stuff, right? Only the ideal stuff. Two weeks ago, I posted a short video clip of my son reading the Bible before bed at night. A lot of you saw that and liked it and you probably thought, wow, doesn't he have the absolute perfect kid? Just the ideal specimen of the human race right there. What I did not share with you is what happened five minutes later when Luke fought me over whether we should brush his teeth or not. I didn't share that because that's not what we do. We share only the good stuff, never the mess. And so what happens when you go online? Well, all you see is everyone else's great life. You don't see their mess, but you know your mess because you're living in it. 
And so you go online and your life always fails by comparison. You are always the loser when you go online and make a comparison. So you see this string of perfect vacation pics, perfect parenting moments, perfect romantic dates, and you don't have them in your life, and you feel inferior, you feel like you're missing out. That feeds discontentment. The nature of social media fuels comparison and starves contentment. Finally, social media, it's destroying civility and kindness in our country and in our world in general. The research is actually conclusive about that. It's showing it very clearly. There's two features that were designed into the internet from day one that fuel cruelty. The first, I hate this, is anonymity. I hate that on the internet you are ever allowed to be anonymous. The result is that you can say things on the internet you would never say face to face. You feel like you can get away with it. Second thing, design feature of the internet, you get to say something without seeing the look on the person's face you just sent it to. You don't get to see their, their shock. You don't get to see the tears in their eyes. You don't get to see the pain they're in. This distance takes away any empathy you would feel if you actually said it face to face. So anonymity and distance have generated a culture of cruelty online. We see that with our kids. You realize young kids today are bullying each other so mercilessly on the internet, on social media, that some kids are killing themselves over it. We're seeing in studies that empathy and compassion among children who have access to a smartphone is rapidly declining. But that's true of adults as well. Just look at this last election cycle. There was so much brutality and hatred and horrible stuff online that would never be excusable if you were saying it in person. So the internet has given birth, social media has given birth to some incredibly destructive things. We humans created something without ever asking if we should we just created it because we could and now it's here and it can't be put away the genie's out of the bottle you're never going to put it back and so what do you do with that fact that you now live in an online world well some christians will choose the first option the first option i call the ron swanson option there are these things called cookies where like if you go to a site and buy something it'll remember you and then create ads for other stuff you might want to buy so it learns information about me seems like an invasion of privacy dude if you think that's bad go to google earth and type in your address So the Ron Swanson option is get off the grid, throw the devices away, take my family off the internet, off the social media so we don't have any of the negative parts of it. Well, great option, but not an option for the vast majority of us. Adults, how many of you could do your job as it is presently constituted without ever going online? (laughs) Almost no hands at all. Students, how many of you could complete your education without ever going online? None of you. It's impossible. We live on the grid. We can't escape it. And so as followers of Christ, how do we follow Jesus online? This online world that is so full of such evil and and brutality and cruelty, how do we honor Jesus when we go online? That's what we're going to really get into this morning. And and I want to start by giving you my big two principles 
Okay, these are the, the big two, the big idea that guides all of our online interactions. They actually both come from a single verse in the book of Matthew. This is, in my opinion, the most important verse about social media in the Bible, even though what's well, exactly about social media. Best application verse there is, Matthew ten sixteen. Jesus says, behold, I send you, his disciples, out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Two principles that you have there. So Jesus is sending out his disciples into the world. And before they go, he wants them to know this world is a dangerous place full of wolves. That's a perfect way to describe the internet. Dangerous place full of wolves. It wants to destroy you. It it is incredibly dangerous. It's full of dangerous stuff. It connects you to dangerous people. Jesus wants his disciples to understand that. And as a result, he wants us, principle number one, to be vigilant, to remain innocent. Be vigilant to remain innocent as doves. I grieve over the fact that it feels like the internet and social media have already stolen the innocence of so many of our children. They've lost their innocence because of what the online world offers them. My prayer is that that won't be true for you or your kids. But it will only not be true if you are vigilant to watch over yourself and over your children. You must always be vigilant online. You are never safe when you are on the internet. You must be vigilant at all times. Now, some people will ask, well, then why not just pull the Ron Swanson option? Why not just run from the internet? Well, Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm sending you out among the wolves. He doesn't say to them, I'm pulling you back. I'm going to build walls around you to protect you so you never have to interact with the wolves. No, he sends the disciples among the wolves. Why? Because that's why we're on earth. As followers of Christ, we are here to live among the wolves so we can tell them about Jesus. The only reason God has left you on this planet is so you can share the incredibly good news that there is a God in heaven who loves people so much that he died for their sins and rose from the dead so they can have eternal life as a free gift. They cannot believe in Jesus unless we tell them. And so Jesus is sending us into the world and the world is online. So he's sending us into the online world. He wants us to go online and into social media so we can tell people about Jesus. And so that leads us to the second principle. First principle, be vigilant to remain innocent. Second, wisely use the internet for good. Because here's the deal. As as much evil as there is on the internet, it still is a tool for incredible good. Actually, in my own life, most of my interactions with unbelievers is actually through the internet, primarily through Facebook, because most of you already know Jesus, and I like seeing you today, but I really want to hang out with unbelievers who don't know Jesus yet, and I connect with them through Facebook pages about how we repair cars, and we talk about that, and then we get to talk about deeper stuff as time progresses. Whole charities are built around the internet. Look at what crew and breakaway are doing through the internet, reaching tens of thousands of people for Jesus. There's incredible opportunity there online for us to to reach this world for Jesus Christ. So don't run from it. Instead, be vigilant to remain innocent while at the same time being wise to use the internet for great good. 
That's the big idea for us this morning, those two principles. Now I want to get very specific. I want to get into the practices I've discovered in my four months of research on this topic. I'm going to lay out these principles under two parts. The first part is about how each of us as individuals use the internet and social media in a way that pleases Jesus. The second part will be how we as parents train our children to do the same. So let's start by talking about us. Principles or practices to guide how we as individuals use social media. The first is limit the amount. Limit the amount. I hope I'm not the first to tell you this, but if I am, here you go. All social media is addicted by design. It was designed intentionally to addict you. I hope you realize Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, they weren't made for altruistic reasons. Why were they invented? To make money. They're businesses. They want to make money. How do they make more money? By getting more of your time. That's why all social media companies have massive research departments trying to figure out how to get more of your time and attention. They want you to be addicted to their app. That's the reason for every feature you see designed into social media, following, alerts, liking, sharing, all of that is designed to get more of your time so that you become addicted to their app so that they make more money. So you need to understand social media by its very design is meant to addict you. So let's be spiritually clear here. Social media is not inherently sinful. It's okay for you to use social media, but... When it becomes an addiction, it becomes sinful for you. Here's how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians six twelve: All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. To be mastered is to be addicted. If the internet, if social media has become a thing that masters you, you can't put it away, then for you it has become a sin. So what are the signs of addiction to social media? Well, I'll give you a few. Um, These are certainly not exhaustive. But if online relationships in your life have become more real and deep and significant than face-to-face relationships, that's a bad sign. Because you got online relationships, you got actual same space, flesh-to-flesh relationships. If the dial is leaning towards the online relationships, that's a sign of addiction. Second example, if social media interrupts actual face-to-face conversations, that's a sign of addiction. If you're talking to someone like in the same room, hello, how are you doing? And you can't help but pull out the phone and see what's going on, that's addiction. If you start to sweat or tremble or feel anxious because you've not checked your phone in 10 minutes, that's addiction. Okay, so watch out for these signs of addiction in your life. How do you fight back? How do you keep yourself from becoming addicted to social media and the internet? I'm going to give you four practical ideas. You you don't have to practice all of them. Maybe just choose one of them to try out in your life this week. Number one, consider practicing Sabbath from electronics. Sabbath is a biblical idea we see both in the Old and New Testament. The Jews, they, they took Sabbath from Friday night to Saturday night. Christians, we take Sabbath on Sunday. The idea is a day away from work. I would encourage you to consider it maybe a day away from social media. A day where for 24 hours you are not going to check Facebook or Instagram or any of that. You're not going to go on the internet. You're going to put it away so that you can focus undistracted time on God and the actual people you are in the room with. That would be a good way to start, keep you from becoming addicted. Second idea, ban devices from meals. 
heard some great ideas here. Um, so you go have lunch after service with a group of your friends. As soon as you sit down at the table, all phones go face down in the middle of the table. First person to grab their phone before the check comes pays the whole check. If you're at home, there's no check to pay. Okay, all devices, middle of the table. First person to grab their device does all the dishes. Begin to teach yourself how to say no. Okay, that'll keep you from becoming addicted. Third, schedule off hours. So schedule, on on your actual schedule, set hours when you will not be on the internet, when you will not be on social media, ideally when your phone will be off. So maybe it's 9 p.m. to 7 a.m. You're not gonna be on the phone. You let your friends know, you, you let your coworkers know, you can't reach me. From nine, you don't need to reach me from 9 a.m. to 7 Call me. That's maybe the one thing you have is the phone working, but nothing else. Schedule those off hours. Fourth idea, set up restricted spaces in your life. So actual places where social media is not allowed, like maybe the bedroom or maybe the bed um, where it's just it's not allowed. Devices cannot go in there. Or maybe the car as you're driving to work uh, or taking your kids to school. No social media is allowed. We got to actually talk to one another. Go figure. Okay, so set these, these spaces in your life to help you to not become addicted. And here's, here's the basic idea. Because social media is designed to be addictive, it will addict you unless you fight back. You must fight back, okay? You have to take ownership for that. Second principle, assume everyone will see everything, It stuns me that any of us still believe in online privacy. How many celebrities have to have their nudes stolen and posted online? How many major stores have to have all their credit card accounts hacked and stolen? How many times do we have to see, like, Democratic Party lost all their emails? They're all posted online. The NSA got hacked. And you think your emails, pictures, and posts are safe out there? Are you kidding me? Even the stuff you post anonymously, even the stuff you put on your phone and don't share with anyone, all of it can be hacked. Absolutely all of it. There is no privacy online. There is no way you can prevent your stuff from being stolen by someone determined enough to steal it. Therefore, very important principle, never send post or share any comment, link, picture, or video online that you are not comfortable with everyone in the world seeing everywhere forever. If it is on your device, it is available for the entire world to see. I had a friend stop me after the first service and said, you don't even have to text it. You don't have to send it. If it's on your iPhone, it will back up to the cloud and it can be hacked. There is absolutely nothing digital that cannot be stolen. So you must assume that everyone can see everything forever. So before you post that picture, that video, that comment, even to a group that you think is private, I want you to ask yourself, how would you feel if your spouse sees it or your future spouse or your boss or your friends or your parents or your pastor? Are you okay with it? If you post it anywhere online, even anonymously, even in a private group, everyone everywhere can see it forever. You just must assume that. So with that in mind, students, let me just be very practical for you in a moment. I would assume that most of you would like to get a job when you leave Texas A&M. Therefore, I want you to think about your online profile as a resume that will follow you forever. 
You need to assume that your boss 10 years from now can see everything you're putting online today because all of it is hackable. Anything put on the internet is there forever. It can never be removed. So are you sure you want to post that picture of you drinking too much or wearing too little or saying something racist? Are you sure you want to post that online where it could be seen 10 years from now? Never post anything online that you are not comfortable with everyone seeing everywhere forever. That's our second practice. Third, consider the content of what you post online. Paul tells us this in Ephesians 4. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Now, we tend to think of that as verbal speech. When you're talking, don't say mean stuff to people. Always let it be seasoned with grace. Always good for people. Let's be clear. Online speech counts as much as verbal speech from your mouth, even if it's done anonymously because you're not anonymous with God. God sees right through your anonymous profile. Everything you post or say online must match this verse. It must be gracious, it must be edifying, it must be kind, it must be something that you would point to that in front of Jesus and say, I'm proud I put that there. Okay, so we need to have that in our minds. Now, let me be clear, a lot of people ask, can I be funny online? Yes, you can, but be funny in a way that doesn't tear people down or embarrass people or hurt your witness for Jesus. You need to think about the content of what you are posting. And so here's my rule. Here's, here's what I do in my own life. This is true for everything I do online, whether it's a private group, whether it's a text message, whether it's an email, anything digital. If I would not say it to the person face to face, I will not say it online, period. Do not ever violate that principle. If you won't say it online, if you won't say it face to face, don't say it online. That includes anonymous profiles, because again, you're not anonymous with God. I may not know who at Hip Hop Augustine is, but God does. And so he's responsible to honor God in everything he says to his anonymous account. Fourth practice for us, consider your motives. Even if it's an okay thing to post, why are you posting it? I would encourage you, before you ever share anything online, I want you to think about why are you about to share this? What's going on in your heart? Are you sharing this because you want to bless someone or thank someone or share some good news or, or, or brighten someone's day? Or, and you got to be honest here, are you sharing it because you really want likes? You really want more followers. You want to stroke your ego. You want to feel better about yourself. Those are not okay motives. And we got to remember, God cares as much about our motives as he does our actions, And so posting something online that's good, but posting it for a bad motive is sin. You need to think through your motives before you post it. Finally, number five, you need to consider the consequences. You need to recognize that every single thing you post online affects someone or maybe many someones. And so it is therefore your personal responsibility to think ahead of time about how your post, your comment, your share will affect everyone who sees it. You you need to think through, is this thing going to hurt someone? Is it going to embarrass someone? Is it going to offend or sadden someone or or, or make them feel bad about themselves? Is this post or comment, is it going to negatively impact my witness for Jesus? How's it going to affect us? 
Now, I'm not saying that you have to predict every response. You can't possibly do that. And I'm not trying to get you to be overcritical here. I don't want you to be so anxious that you never go online and share anything. And sometimes you're going to have to share something that's offensive because truth sometimes offends. So I'm not trying to get you to overthink this, but I want you to pause long enough to think honestly about what the impact is going to be of what you're about to post online. So let me give you a few examples, which will, I'm sure, offend some of you. So let's just go there. You go to a really fun party or a movie or one of those new escape rooms that's popping up everywhere in town with a select group of your friends, but not everyone. Not, not everyone was invited, just a small group. And you take a picture because it's a lot of fun, and then you hit share and you post it on social media. How do your friends who weren't invited feel when they see that? Unloved? Inferior? Uncared for? Did you just drive their own personal struggle with loneliness and and sadness? Because we all have that struggle. I really don't understand this new trend that I see. It it doesn't make sense to me personally. I, I don't know why there's this need to share pictures of group events that you didn't invite everyone to. That that's just causing pain for people. I I don't get it. If if a party happened and you don't post it on Instagram, did it really happen? Yes, it did. It happened, you enjoyed it, you don't need to share it with people who weren't there so that they can feel bad about themselves. Now, that doesn't apply if everyone is invited. If it's your whole sorority, great. If it's your whole department, great. But if not everyone's invited, guys, let's keep that private. Maybe just share it by a text with the specific people who went. You don't need to share it with everyone. You're just driving our struggle that we all have with loneliness and discontentment. Second example, parents, are you thinking about what you're sharing about your kids? What you're saying online, the pictures that you are posting online. A 2010 study found that 92% of American children have an online presence before the age of two. Parents post nearly a thousand images of their children online before their fifth birthday. Parents wrap their children's online identities into their own online selves, and so many children growing up today experience the world as a never-ending series of photo shoots for public consumption. We're raising our kids to be performers. That's from Nancy Jo Sale's book. Before you post or share anything about your child, I want you to think about how it's going to affect your child, not just today, but when they see it 10 or 20 years from now, because they will. Anything you post online is there forever. It can never be taken down. So when they see it 10 years from now, are they going to think, hey, that was fun. I'm I'm glad mom and dad shared that. Or are they going to feel embarrassed or bad about themselves because of what you shared? Parents, it's, it's never okay for us to build our online popularity on the backs of our children. We need to protect them. We need to protect their privacy. We need to think about what's good for them before we share something online. Third example, offend some more people. Before posting or linking to something political or strongly opinionated, I want you to pause and think about how this post or share could affect your witness for Jesus. Now let me be clear. I'm not saying to never post anything political or strongly opinionated or anything that could offend someone. That's just life. Sometimes we need to say things. 
I'm saying pause long enough to think about the effect it's going to have on your witness for Jesus because realize your witness for Jesus is infinitely more important than your politics. For me personally, and I'm not telling you to do this, but, but for me as a pastor, because of my unique position up here, I never post anything political online. I actually don't want anyone to know my politics because I want to be able to speak equally with liberals and conservatives, Democrats, Republicans. I want to be able to talk to everybody about anything without them seeing me through some political grid. My politics is insignificant compared to the conversations I could have about Jesus. I'm not telling you to do that. I'm telling you to pause long enough to think about how your political statements, your shares, your links, your comments will affect your ability to witness for Jesus to people who don't agree with your politics. Think about that carefully. Okay, so... The big idea here, how should I use social media? I've given you five practices. All of these practices require one thing. You must slow it down. You have to slow down your online interactions to give yourself long enough to prayerfully think through your, the content, your motives, the consequences. Give yourself time, time to pray and ask God, God, if, if this post, if this picture, if this comment doesn't honor you, please take it away. Let me hit delete. So I, I'm just going to give you the five-minute rule. That's my encouragement. I know some of you are young and five minutes feels like forever. Some of you are old and think I should have said five hours. Well, let's just let's settle on five minutes. Before you post any picture, comment, or video online, you, you can get it ready, queued up, and then stop for five minutes. Give your brain five minutes to think through the content, the motives, and the consequences, and give yourself five minutes to pray. And ask God, God, if this is not okay, help me to to hit delete. I'll be honest with you guys. I, I am so thankful to God today for all of the posts and comments I did not share. I had them queued up and ready. And then through his spirit, I felt better about it and realized I probably shouldn't share that. And I'm so happy because it would haunt me today. So pause and slow it down and take long enough to think through the content, the motives, the consequences before you post. Okay, so five practices for how we use social media. Time to talk to parents. How do we help our kids to use social media wisely? How do we prepare them to follow Jesus online? As I was preparing for this this week, an interesting thing happened yesterday. It was kind of funny. I was hanging out with my son, Luke. He's seven. We're cleaning the garage, which we do often. I like to spend time with him out there. And he's playing around. He, he plays more than he works, but it's fun to have him with me. So he hops in my little car. I have a little Miata, and he hops in. It's a really tight little cockpit. And it was actually really, it's a really big moment for us. He actually has finally reached the height where he can reach all the pedals. If I put something behind his back and I had a big piece of foam, so I put it back there, and he could actually work all the pedals. So what does he ask immediately? Daddy, can I drive your car? Well, Come on, buddy. You're a little young for that. But he just, he kept asking. And I needed to clean the garage. Like, I really had to get it done. He just kept, Daddy, 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 can I please, please, please drive your car? And so finally, I was like, okay, I, I got to get back to work. So I pulled the car out of the garage, and I left it running. I hop out. I put him in. Um, I pointed down the street, and I said, hey, buddy, have fun. And then I got back, and I was able to get my work done. How many of you figured out I'm completely lying about that? <laughs> Hopefully you have. If I hadn't, then you need to call the police, and I need to go to jail. Because good parents don't do that. We would never hand a child, a seven-year-old child, a running car and say, have fun, see you later. Because it's dangerous. They're going to die or they're going to kill someone else. Okay, so why do we hand a child an internet-connected device and tell them, have fun, 
I'll see you later. Realize that smartphone in the hands of a child is every bit as dangerous as a running car. It gives them access to a world full of criminality, pornography, cruelty, brutality, violence, horrific stuff. We've just opened the door to addiction and destruction in their lives. Parents, why are we handing smartphones and iPads to young kids and letting them go explore without training them, without preparing them, without watching over them? That's crazy. That's like handing a three-year-old a loaded pistol and telling him, go have fun out there. See you later. We'd never do that. It's our responsibility as children, as parents, to watch over and protect and train our children. So how do we do that? How do we help our children get online in a way that protects them and helps them to follow Jesus online? Well, three steps to being a good parent to your child, helping them to get online well. First step is we got to train them. And this comes first. Training is the most important because the next two, setting boundaries and providing oversight, your boundaries and your oversight will eventually fail. If you have a tween or a teen, they're probably already smarter than you at getting on the internet. You cannot prevent them forever from getting online. So your boundaries are going to eventually collapse. Your oversight is going to eventually fail. So it is crucial that we train them ahead of time. We need to get them ready for all of the horrific things that they're going to see online. We need to prepare them for that. So before you give your child an internet-connected device and turn them loose, you need to have some conversations. The first conversation is you train them. You need to teach them all the principles we just covered, those five practices of how you use the internet well. It's the same for them. You need to talk about all five of those practices before you turn them loose on social media or online. Second, you've got to discuss internet safety. Don't beat around the bush. Talk about it openly. They need to know that there are predators online who are trying to lure them in and kill them. They just need to know that. They need to have an appropriate fear about that and know how to avoid those kind of people. Third, you've got to have the porn talk. You need to know it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. Your children will see porn, and I don't mean just nudity. They're going to see violent, misogynistic, abusive porn, and they're going to see a flood of it all the time. So they need to know how to avoid it as best they can, though it won't be perfect, and they need to know what to do when they see it. Who should they come tell? What should they do with the device? Don't beat around the bush. Talk openly, honestly, use the real words, be descriptive. They need to know. Don't let them learn about pornography from their friends. They need to learn about it from you. Fourth, you need to discuss online bullying. They will be bullied or a friend will be bullied anonymously online. It will be painful. It will be horrible. Your child needs to know what to do. Who should they tell when they see brutality online? A teacher, a parent, someone. Who do they need to talk to? Have a plan in place for what will happen when your child experiences or sees cruelty or bullying online. You need to have all four of those discussions before you give your child a smartphone or a tablet that's connected to the internet and turn them loose. Okay, so we have to train them ahead of time so that they're ready for all of the horrible things that they will for sure see on the internet. 
One practical idea I'll give you when it comes to training. I thought this was a great idea. I heard it from Andrea Pale. She shared that she's trying to get her twins um, ready to use Instagram. They're older than mine. Um, And so what she did, I thought this was brilliant. She created an Instagram account for each of them, but she completely owns it. They, They can't even log on without her. Everything about it is hers. It just is in their name. So they're going to do that for a while. If they want to share something, they have to come to her. She logs on. She shares it. She manages all of it. Eventually, they'll graduate to the level where they can co-own it. So she can see everything, change everything, do whatever she wants, but they can also begin to get on and do stuff. Once they've graduated from that level of schooling, they will be ready to own the account. What a brilliant idea. It's like giving somebody a a, a driver's permit. Like before they're ready to get their driver's license, they have a learner's permit. They're practicing. Help your kids practice living online. Great idea. So train them. Second, set boundaries. What your kids need to understand about smartphones, iPads, social media, smartphones are not a right, they are a responsibility. They are not a right, they are a responsibility. Your child does not have a right to a device. If you choose to give it to them, that's your choice. They don't have a right to it. An internet connected device is a massive responsibility. It's like your car. Okay? It, it has great power, but it can be very dangerous if used inappropriately. So your children need to understand smartphones are not a right, they're a responsibility. So you need to flesh out exactly what the responsibilities are. So I would encourage you, parents, I would encourage you to write what's called a family media contract that you and your children sign before you give them a device. Fortunately, there's a million of them online. You don't have to start from scratch. Just go to Google and type in family media contract. You'll get a thousand examples. You can cut and paste as you see fit. Every family, every child will be unique. The rules will be unique, but spell out exactly what the rules are. What are your expectations? What exactly will the consequences be if your child violates the rules? So spell it all out ahead of time. If your child violates a contract, make sure you enforce the consequences. You must do that. Okay, so set these boundaries. What are some practical boundaries? A couple examples. I would encourage you, um, one boundary to set that I think is really helpful. All devices sleep in a lockup at night. I do not believe that any child under 16 should have a device in their bedroom. I, I, I do not let them sleep with a device that is that is asking for trouble and addiction and horrible things in their lives. So I'd encourage you at some point at night, maybe it's 8 o'clock, maybe it's 10 o'clock, whatever it is, everyone, here's a hard one, including you, puts the device in sleep mode, puts it in a common place like the kitchen or the living room where they all are charged. They all plug in there, and then they live there at night. And every family member can come get their device at a prearranged time in the morning, 7 a.m., 6 a.m., whenever it is. Devices shouldn't sleep with us. Get them out of the bedrooms. Uh, another practical banner, ba- boundary is um, lock down a child's ability to install apps and then ban certain apps. I'm not going to tell you for sure to ban these apps. Some of you college students out there have them. I'm just going to tell you to be very, very, very careful with any of the apps I'm about to name. They're particularly filled with pornography and anonymous bullying, and there's kids killing themselves over these apps. Okay, so I want you to be incredibly careful about allowing your child to have any of these. That would include Yik Yak, Snapchat, Tinder, Tumblr, Kick, and Ask FM. All incredibly dangerous apps. Not telling you not to let them, 
but be very, very careful if you do. Set boundaries on what apps are allowed. There are some that are out there that are incredibly destructive, okay? Just if you're a parent and don't know this, there's also a lot of secretive private apps called vaults where kids can lock away conversations and pornography, and to you it just looks like a working calculator. Make sure you control what can be added on their phone. A lot of bad stuff out there. Third, so you've set the boundaries now. Provide oversight. Let's be clear, until your child moves out there under your oversight, including when they're online. And so parents, you need to just be honest with your kids. You need to be very direct. You as the parent have the right to see anything on their device at any moment. At any time, you can say to your child, hand me the phone, hand me the tablet, and you get to see all of it. They have no privacy from you. You're the parent. Biblically, privacy is not allowed between the parent and the child so long as the child is a child. They have to submit the device to you. They cannot hide it. They cannot be secretive on it. You have the right to see it all. Now, some parents will object. Well, but wait a minute. Shouldn't I trust my child? No, 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 no. You misunderstand how trust operates. Until you are ready to hand your child the keys to your running car and send them off into the night, they have no business with a phone you can't look through. You have the right to see everything at all times. This is not about trust. This is about your responsibility as a good parent. Everywhere they go online should be open to you. No secret accounts allowed. No secret apps allowed. All of it open to you so that you can provide oversight until they're ready to be on their own online. As long as you're providing oversight for your children, parents, I'd encourage you to look out for four warning signs, four specific things. First, addiction. We've talked about that. Addiction rates are incredibly high for children, running as high as 40 to 50% of kids that are connected to social media are already addicted by the clinical definition. You need to be watching for signs of addiction. Watch for signs of narcissism. Narcissism is when we're consumed with with our image, um, our self-image, our beauty, vanity, always posting selfies of ourselves. Watch out for narcissism. Watch out for body image issues. Social media and things like anorexia, bulimia, and cutting go hand in hand. So watch out for those. Watch out for possessiveness. If your child tries to hide their device from you or guard it from you, that's a sure sign there's something bad happening there. And you need to talk about that immediately. Okay, so three things. You need to train your kids. You need to set boundaries. You need to provide oversight. Here's the good news. Even though your child will probably never admit it, Your child actually desperately wants your help. They really do. Your child wants your help. Here's here's the deal. Your child, your tween, your teen, cannot imagine life without the internet. It's for us, for us who are older, the internet is, is a tool, it's useful for them. It's life. It is literally the air they breathe. They cannot go off it, and yet they spend so much time on it that they have already seen how harmful it can be. They know better than we do the evil that's out there. And so they're caught in this wicked catch-22. Nancy Jo Sales tells us about this. She tells of a conversation she had with a couple teenage girls. One said, social media is destroying our lives, said the girl at the Grove. So why don't you go off it, I asked. Because then we would have no life. 
They're caught in this wicked catch-22. They can't get off because that's where life is lived and yet they see better than we do how toxic and horrible it is. They're desperate for your help. You realize if you've given your kid a smartphone or an iPad, you have sent them among the wolves. Don't abandon them in that fight. Stand next to them. Help them. Train them. Watch over them. Protect them as best you can in this dangerous world of social media and the internet. You need to help your children. You need to watch over them. You need to protect them. So my final piece of advice for you as you think about how to do this with your kids, as you think about how to do this in your own life, please keep this conversation going. This is one sermon. If this is all the conversation we have, this was a fail. I want you to be talking to your friends, your roommates, your spouse, your parents, your kids. I want this conversation to be ongoing. Why? Because the internet is changing every minute of every day. There's new apps coming out, new realities coming out. We need to be talking about social media and the internet every day for the rest of our lives. So let's keep this conversation going with one another as we talk about how to follow Jesus online. Let me give you a few resources to consider to help the conversation keep going. This sermon, including all my notes and slides, will be ready and online on our website by Tuesday afternoon. So you can get it there if I've covered a lot of stuff and you want to get any of that. It'll be here on Tuesday afternoon. If you want to see more of the particular books that I referenced frequently um, this morning, the first would be uh, Nancy Jo Sales' American Girls, Social Media, and the Secret Lives of Teenagers. Uh, parental warning, it is a completely rated R book, full of explicit language and explicit situations because she tells you what is actually happening. It's a research-based book. It's brutal. And yet if you have a tween or teen, it is completely worth your time. I encourage you to read it. You need to know the world you're about to send your child into. The third resource, second book, Nicholas Carr's The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains. It will help you understand what's actually happening to you through your use of social media and the internet, how it is actively rewiring the neural processes in your brain, and what you do about that. So great resources out there. As always, feel free to come talk to me, email me. Let's keep this conversation going so that we can follow Jesus online. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you. That because your son Jesus died and rose from the dead, we are forgiven, including all of the sins that we've committed online, all of the times we've looked at something inappropriate, said something inappropriate, posted something inappropriate. Because of Jesus, you've already forgiven us for that. Thank you for that. Thank you that he has brought about forgiveness. But Lord, we're, we're entering into a world, this online, this social media world that is so new and, and so wild and so crazy and, and it's full of good things, but it's also full of such dangerous things and all of us are overcome by how do we navigate that world as followers of Christ and as parents, we're overwhelmed by the thought, how do we help our kids navigate this destructive world of, of online presence? Lord, we pray, please teach us. Please convict us through your spirit. Please challenge us to to take the initiative to be good parents, to be good followers of Jesus online. I pray that you would help us to be different, that we would be in the online world, but not of the online world, that we would represent Jesus well online in everything that we post, everything we like, everything we share, that all of it we would be able to look at and point at and tell Jesus, I'm proud of that. I pray, Lord God, take this life that we now live online 
and conform it to the image of your son so that he might be lifted high in our lives. It is all for Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. Walk with Jesus online this week.